Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area, one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. chess podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the October edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest today is Michael Tisserand, a Minnesota-based author whose books include Crazy, George Harriman, A Life in Black and White, the Eisner Award-winning biography of cartoonist George Harriman, creative Crazy Cat. The book was also named a New York Times Notable Book of 2017. He also worked with the World Chess Hall of Fame on their 2017 exhibition, POW, Capturing Superheroes, Chess, and Comics. In his chess life, he has been a chess coach at his kid's school, organizer of the New Orleans Chess Fest, and a chess dad. His son, Miles, reached expert level, and his daughter, Cecilia, is a Class C player strong enough to challenge dear old dad in his 1620 rating. His previous books include The Kingdom of Zydeco and Sugarcane Academy, How a New Orleans Teacher and His Stormstruck Students Created a School to Remember. In 2021, Michael published My Father When Young, a collection of 1950s-era photography by his father, Jerry Tisserand. Michael's work has also appeared in the New York Times, The Oxford American, The Nation, Daily Beast, and Lit Hub. Michael is the former editor of Gambit Weekly, not a chess publication, and his 11-part Hurricane Katrina series, Submerged, was published by alternative newsweeklies across the country. His chess writing includes the September 2020 Chess Life cover story profile, of New Orleans music legend Charlie Gabriel, and he was a guest on the September 2020 Cover Stories with Chess Life podcast, hosted by John Hartman, talking more about that story. My relationship with Michael goes back to 2009, when he first contacted me to pitch an article on Renee Phillips, and then in 2013 for another Chess Life article he wrote while I was editor about the chess camp Ole Chess. I also have a distinct memory of having a long conversation with Michael when we were on the tw- we were at the 2016 U.S. Open in Indianapolis, and we were bused to a movie theater for a special screening screening of Queen of Katwe. Michael Tisserand, welcome to the October edition of One Move at a Time. I've forgotten that bus ride, Daniel. That that those moments are one of the reasons why I love the chess world. Is you know finding yourself. Uh, on a bus to a screening to a chess movie and getting in a long conversation. It's great to be here. Thanks, Daniel. No, you're you're welcome. And you know, it's there's there's nothing original about this. But let's begin with the beginning. How did you get started in chess? Uh, the daughter uh, Cecilia that you mentioned. Uh, it was absolutely uh, her. Um, I knew some of the rules of chess when she was in first grade enough i had a, a actually I had a charlie brown and snoopy chess set i bought her uh you know woodstock uh, bird bass or the rook and lucy's the queen of course and charlie brown's the king and um so we had you know we had played along with that along with every other game on the shelf and then there was a um a girls uh, tournament at a school in New Orleans. And I said, do you want to be in a chess tournament? And Cecilia said, yes. And she went and had just had a great time. She won a couple of games and lost a couple of games. Not, not, you know, the other kids knew the rules about it's halfway, had been taught about half the rules like I, I had been at that point. I think she was in kindergarten. I guess she was in kindergarten. Um, and, uh, and then right around that time, also uh, Jude Akers, uh, the, the, the French Quarter, legendary street chess player, uh, gave a simul at her school, and we went to that. There's still a photo somewhere of Cecilia and I both looking up in fear and trepidation at Mr. Akers. And, uh, 
And that was a load of fun. And then we just started going kind of deeper and deeper uh, into uh, into playing chess together. So uh, it was really, um, it was a subset of enjoying being a dad uh, for me uh, for, for that time. That chess was sort of a subset of that. And when did Miles start playing? Right away, he had to keep up with his sister and surpass her, of course. Uh, so Miles started playing. We had moved um, to uh, to Evanston, Illinois, after uh, after Hurricane Katrina. Um, made uh, made made it made that move a, a good idea for our family, and uh, we had lived there for about two years. And during that time, we came we entered a school, Dewey Elementary School, that I talked about uh, on that WBE. There's a WBEZ uh, radio essay um, where I, I talk about that experience. Uh, there were two women that were running the chess program there. They were really dynamic. Merritt Thorpe, one of them, is still very active in chess as a TD now. Um, they were very dynamic and organized a great program. And it was really exciting to just jump right into a, a big program like that. And um, we had our first chess teacher in the family. His name was Chris Christmas. Uh, he had a Louisiana connections and was a great guy. Uh, still is, I'm sure. And uh, he would come over and teach Cecilia and then start to teach Miles at the same time. So uh, Miles, Miles jumped in at that time when he was, I guess, four or five. So, you know, Miles became eventually an expert level player. When, when was it clear to you that he had a special talent for the game? He, uh, yeah, and he was a, the Louisiana State champion a few years ago. Um, he, uh, he has a very... A very sharp and analytic mind, and uh, I think he was motivated by uh, by his uh, competition with his sister and a, a friendly sibling rivalry. And uh, when did it become clear? That's a good question. I think um, you know, very early on, he had a, a real real desire to figure out the patterns. Um, and he really found uh, a lot of joy in in discovering uh, in chess really early. I think it was that it was that feeling that he had this joy and delight in in in, in a move or a uh, a tactic or something that he hadn't uh, you know hadn't seen before that becomes clear became clear to him. Uh, and that that's that's the what I thought. Well, this this is something to build on. Uh, so when we moved back to New Orleans, uh, Cecilia actually picked our chess teacher then, Renee Phillips, uh, who I wrote about uh, with you as my editor. Um, we went to a tournament there. New Orleans was just getting its chess world back on its feet again, like everything else back on its feet again post-Katrina. This was a couple years after Katrina still. But there was a tournament and a kids tournament, and Renee was there in a corner. And you've, you've all seen that scene. It's a really dynamic uh gregarious, uh, education-oriented teacher uh, that a, a crowd soon, and, and also the great sense of humor and a lot of theatricality and a crowd formed around him and he was you know, moving the pieces around and, and um, Cecilia said, that's, I want, that's, who my chest, uh, that's who I want for my chess teacher dad. Uh, and that, Rene was a huge influence on Miles. I think he became a really important figure in Miles' life early on. We'd have these neighborhood chess lessons. We had a, a family, a couple doors away from us that had two kids that played chess. So Renee would come over and we'd have four or five or even more kids sometimes rotate around for one or two hours uh, at the chess table uh, once a week. And, and I think that those, those and also the chess camps uh, really, uh, I think, helped uh, sort of uh, lock in Miles' interests, which continues to this day. So, so Miles is still playing as a young adult. This is it's often the time of life when scholastic players stop playing as they start getting their uh, their adult life off off the ground. What, what about Cecilia? Is she is chess at all a part of her life right now? Cecilia, uh, chess is uh, part of uh, li- Cecilia's life in the sense that it's a secret superpower. So she's not. She has played a couple tournaments. She lives in Seattle. Miles and Cecilia are both in Seattle right now. And uh, there have been some friendly tournaments. There's there's a nice uh, chess uh, bar scene in Seattle. Uh, there's actually one in Capitol Hill, the neighborhood where Cecilia lives and where Miles goes to school. And uh, in fact, I'm going to be there uh, a couple Mondays from now and join them for Monday night uh, bar chess. And there have been a couple uh, informal tournaments. And, and Cecilia has enjoyed going to a bar. Someone's playing chess. 
she's looking, they say, do you want to play? And then she, uh, you know, kind of cleans up the board. Uh, so I think, I think she's enjoyed that. Uh, but it hasn't, that hasn't, hasn't been a part of her life past that. It's not a, it's not a, a daily, you know, a daily or weekly passion for her. It's just, it's a thing she can come to and, and give her some, uh, uh, a bit of excitement from now, now and then. So I'm, I'm curious as you look back on it, you know, the last, uh, I don't know, 15 years or so, mm-hmm. what you think that chess meant to your family, um, with chess being such an important part and specifically, was it different than say if soccer or if you had been little league parents of something like that, did it add something that other pursuits did not or would not have? You know, it's hard for me to compare, um, Cecilia's soccer was uh, really important to her throughout school. Miles's music was really important to him throughout school. Uh, but chess was something, and this is this is the case I know for for families I know that have this relationship with soccer or another sport or another activity. Uh, but chess was very much something that I could do alongside uh, Cecilia and Miles and uh, find find a way to compete and to win and lose together. And uh, and discover uh, it's this, this sort of discover uh, the, the beauty of a of a chess game together, and uh, we could and 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 it was a supremely social event. So that's that's what motivated me to be an organizer is try to create as many opportunities for them and also expand that to the wider community. Uh, so there was sort of an opening and a need in the school for a, a chess coach, and even though. Uh, like you said, I'm holding strong with my 1600 rating. Um, I figured out enough to uh, to lead the program and um, and bring in people to help with the sort of hardcore instruction uh, for the for the higher skilled players and try to create a sense of fun and enthusiasm around the program. And it grew and uh, was a lot of fun. We started a chess festival in in New Orleans, which went for. I'd like to say four or five years, uh, partnering with a local library and community center there and bringing in uh, folks like Irina Crush or John Bartholomew or uh, our friend Robbie Rasmussen, who is a uh, chess uh, chess teacher in Chicago. And we met through a chess camp and became a dear friend to the whole family. Uh, so we'd bring them in and do simuls and do lessons and have living chess and and uh, have, a, have some music, of course, because it was New Orleans. And uh, I'm happy to say I'm, I'm not in New Orleans now, but I'm happy to say that my friend and ch- fellow chess enthusiast and organizer Kendrick Perkins with the Historic New Orleans Collection has picked up the chess festival and is uh, is carrying that forward now. I think this was his first year uh, starting a, a new chess fest. Now, a, a festival suggests to me a multi-day affair. Is is that the case, or was it a one-day blowout? This was. There are one-day festivals, and this was a one-day blow out no i guess we did have um i guess it was there was one big public blowout but then uh when we bring in somebody like jesse cry uh you know who became also another uh, person who became a friend through through the chess world um and uh so we would have uh something with him uh, a couple couple other times with for a more select you know in, invited group he did a, a sort of a special lesson on sunday morning after the big after the big saturday fest but really it was kind of a one-day blowout that, that's what it was I mean, we, we were we, we felt blown out by the end of it i'll say the biggest thing i learned from chess too is is the, the, probably the single biggest thing is uh my uh my second book sugarcane academy was dedicated to a teacher and it was about teachers after after hurricane katrina so i always had admiration and respect for teachers but after doing one and a half hours a day uh, five days a week, just in an after-school chess program, I'm still absolutely amazed at what teachers can do day in and day out for, for eight or nine hours. I, I still don't get it. I still don't get how they do that. Yeah. Um, because that one hour took everything it, it had out of me during that time. No, exactly. I, I, for one year, I was a chess teacher, and you know, so that was a couple of hours a day, and I was utterly wiped out and exhausted at the end of that two hours. So I can't imagine doing it as a full day, full time job. It's an experience I'd recommend for anybody uh, is to try to uh, be an elementary school teacher for a little bit and uh, and come back with renewed respect for what those teachers are doing every day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now I, I I've got to wonder with the chess fest. That sounds like something you go. Oh, this is a 
you know, this is a great idea. This is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but then after your first one, you go, oh my gosh, if I had known what was going to be involved in this, uh, I don't know that I would have taken it on. Is, was that the case? Yeah, that's why I ultimately had to let it go. It was a little bit of a, if you build it, they will come, uh, uh attempt for me. Um, and I felt, a, you know, I felt a little bit like I was seeing ghosts in the ball field sometimes when I was trying to put this thing together. Uh, I had some really important people helping me out. Uh, Leela Daken, who's a, a very active, much more active than I am, chess organizer in New Orleans. Uh, she was a huge help. Uh, these neighbors of mine that I said I, we would do chess lessons on the street with, uh, uh, Fred uh, Wheatfeld and Marty Cavendish, they threw themselves into it and, and worked on it as hard as I did as well. So, um, so, so that was there. Um, and this fellow, Robbie Rasmussen, I mentioned, uh, uh, came in and he just sort of, uh, you know, we, we, we get him to new Orleans. It was an excuse for him to visit new Orleans. Uh, and he would also throw himself into, uh, helping me put the whole thing together. Um, you know, I tried, uh, kicks, you know, I, I did not do the funding uh, piece of it very, very actively. I just wanted to do the chess piece of it. And that's another reason why it didn't sustain itself. Looking back, if I'd really approached it in a serious, let's start a festival, let's look at a nonprofit, you know, the way that people really get something on the ground to last, um, then it might have been uh, more sustainable. Uh, I did a Kickstarter and, you know, things like that. And we had some people, some you know, uh, this realty office sponsors this chess room or, you know, that, that type of thing. Uh, um, we had a, a woman also, uh, Sarah Wheelock, uh, came in, uh, all, these are all chess moms and chess dads. And she ran a sort of chess art center there as well. Um, so people were donating their labor quite a bit, but like I said, I didn't really create a sustainable festival going forward. We were not, we're not going to rival the new Orleans jazz fest, mm -hmm. uh, anytime soon with that. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's why I was really glad when Kendrick picked it up recently. And, uh, I look forward to helping out in any way, supporting and having as an excuse to get back to New Orleans. Right. Right. And you're, you're no, uh, speaking about getting back to New Orleans, you, I mean, you're no traditional shrinking violet writer who wants to be holed up in their, um, in their little writing room. I've seen some pictures of you where you're pretty out there in a, in a motorized chair in, um, in New Orleans to so talk, talk a little bit about that. The, the, every conversation gets back to the Leslie boys uh, sooner or later. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, New Orleans, I'm, I'm living in Minnesota now, and, and I'm very glad uh, to be here. Uh, some family concerns brought us back here. Uh, and I, I was raised here. I went to uh, middle school and, and high school here. Um, but there is something about New Orleans that, that uh, is irreplaceable, obviously. As a city to the nation and the world, New Orleans is an irreplaceable place, um, but also to me personally. And part of that is just uh, the, the myriad opportunities to get out on the street and act a fool and look around and see that everyone else is acting a fool as well. And um, I have some good friends that... Uh, found one way to do that, which uh, they were they were watching a Mardi Gras parade one time and they're watching groups, these marching groups, and which is a lot of work. They do synchronized dancing and they go for miles and miles and miles. And they said, what if we did this, but just sat down the whole time <laughs> in, uh, in lazy boy chairs and put them on wheels. And uh, they figured out a way to make that happen. So uh, the lazy boys, instead of lazy boy, the lazy boys, uh, social aid and leisure club was born and that's been many years now. I forgot, forgot the number, but, uh, we, uh, we play Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin music while we, uh, roll down the streets in our uh, motorized uh, lazy boy chairs. And, uh, I, I can't wait to get back on the street this Mardi Gras with them. I, I've got my chair in storage there and we'll be getting back to new Orleans to, uh, to make it up to code <laughs> and, uh, and get back rolling again. So, let, let's shift the conversation a bit to your professional life as as a writer. Um, yeah. Wait, wait. Before we sure. shift, let me add one thing. Um, my chess world and my lazy boy world met and collided at the best possible time. But I'm, we were um, we were on down going down St. Charles Avenue. It's the middle of the parade. The oak trees overhead. People screaming and throwing Mardi Gras beads everywhere. And as often happened, the parade stopped there's a float that breaks down or you know some some drunk you know float person falls off the top thing they have to stop the whole thing 
So we're stuck there in the middle of St. Charles Avenue. I look up and there's the Brooks family, one of my most beloved chess family. This is during the time that I was a chess coach uh, at, at my kid's school. And they owned a bar. And they sent their kids out with a tray of old-fashioned, the tray of, <laughs> of cocktail. They brought me out a cocktail in a little highball glass. And um, just found out recently, there's a picture of me the, the, in, in the Brooks Bar, one of the, the bars that Brooks owned, Miss Mays on Magazine Street in New Orleans, uh, as a lesbian boy with these three kids, who I know only because of chess. That, that is the reason why I know them. That was our relationship. Uh, and... Um, and that's that was that's the case over and over again that that chess provided and and in new orleans and elsewhere it's it's just interwoven with with the rest of life it's not like there's chess in there's life it's just you know chess can become woven into your life this way yeah and and it's the same been very much the same for me i mean like uh just having known you for a number of years i i don't know that i ever would have met you and uh become friends with you uh, a, a New York Times writer um, and other articles and and you know writing of books that I find of great interest like Crazy Cat. If I wasn't in this chess world, um, certainly wasn't happening in my previous life as a retail manager. <laughs> Glad you made that switch, Daniel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I I am too, especially around Christmas time every year. <laughs> I, uh, I believe it. So let's let's talk about Crazy Cat because that seems to me to be the. Uh, the work that's been the most uh, you've become the most known for. Uh, it I when when you when I do some research about you, this comes up a lot. Right. So why was this story of of interest to you? Why is Crazy Cat important to American culture? Crazy Cat is uh, a comic strip. Some people know it from the nineteen sixties animations, uh, but but that's not really what I wrote about, and that's not really by George Harriman, the cartoonist that sort of came afterwards. Um, but it was a comic strip that ran in William Hearst newspapers. If you see Citizen Kane or whatever, whatever else you know about Hearst, uh, you should know he was a big friend of comics and cartooning. He loved them and and, uh, and had great comic strips in his papers. And uh, it ran from 1910 to 1944 when George Harriman died. Um, and it was a big influence on people that you and I love, like Charles. Charles Schultz and Bill Watterson and uh, Dr. Seuss and, and Walt Disney. Um, but was, isn't that, I still have to explain who George Harriman is often when I'm talking about the book. Uh, it's, he's, not a, he's not a household name like, like Walt Disney. Um, but the comic is extraordinary. And it, what he did with the story about a black cat and a white mouse that throws the brick at the black cat and the black cat ever interprets the brick as a sign of the white mouse's love for the cat. And that's sort of the basic, the basic structure of, of three decades of, of comics for Harriman. Um, but what he did with that story is explore the nuances and the contours and the emotions that, uh, that he could not say out loud in his life, which is that he was raised in New Orleans, born in New Orleans in 1880 and raised in a, in a black family. Uh, a, a fiercely politically active black family at the at the height uh, and the seat of free black uh, agitation uh, before and after the Civil War for for voting rights. A friend of uh, the Harriman family uh, brought a petition to Abraham Lincoln for black voting rights. You know, during the time that uh, uh, Harriman's father, uh, uh, he, Harriman's father and grandfather, both signed that petition. It was really an, an amazing time. But things started to go really poorly. Uh, Jim Crow laws uh, started to, and, and customs, and not even laws, but uh, just sort of the um, different regulations of life. Uh, passes, you know, started to need be needed to uh, to walk around in their own neighborhood or to walk to where they worked. Uh, the school started to shut down to the Harriman kids. So when Harriman was about nine or ten, the family moved to Los Angeles. And they passed for white. They engaged in this practice of resistance, uh, known as racial passing. And uh, it's a highly controversial practice because obviously some could do it and some could not. After the Harrimans were light-skinned enough that they could they could do it. And George was called George the Greek. That became his nickname. Uh, and he went on and uh, 
lived in a house where he could not legally live as a black man. Uh, he married a woman that, that could have gotten him lynched as a, as a black man. He married a white woman uh, during a time when the papers that he worked were filled with stories of, of, of such lynchings or uh, such scandals when people were found to be passing. Um, and he lived with that for all of his life. And then he did this comic where day in and day out, you sit at the drawing table and you create a story maybe based on a, a sort of vaudeville or even a minstrel gag. But you, he started to bring more and more of his personal material into the work. Uh, so I think, I think he is important uh, as an American story uh, to show the dimensions of racial prejudice and the ways that, uh, the ways that they infiltrated every aspect of our popular culture, as well as resistance to this prejudice. Um, and he's also, I think, a story about uh, art and the way uh, art and an artist uh, almost can't help uh, but, but enter into their art in a very personal way and use that art in a, in a very personal way. And, and uh, I still read Crazy Cat comics and learn from Harriman. Um, his, his cat changed colors, his uh, cat changed genders. I mean, in, in many ways, Harriman was generations ahead of his time, where he has a cat that is non-binary and is both referred to as a he and a she. Uh, and I think the reason is, is that Harriman knew that social identity and legal social identity, and if we call ourselves black and white or by gender, that those are very slippery concepts. They're dependent on on ideas of, of, of language that are, are very slippery. There's this uh, great comic where Ignatz the Mouse is talking with Crazy Cat, and uh, Ignatz says, uh, language is so we can understand each other, right? You and I are talking. Language is so we can understand each other. And Crazy Cat says, well, can a Finn understand a Laplander or a Laplander understand an Oshkosher, which I think is someone from Oshkosh, Wisconsin? Uh, and Ignatz says no, and Crazy Cat says, so I say language is so we can misunderstand each other. And uh, I think that's, these days, in these days of great polarization, that's a good thing to step back and say, this language, you know, we are to try to get that, that, that a little piece of, of where, where these misunderstandings are coming from. Yeah, um, and kind of... Chairman has a lot to teach, I think. And, and to kind of bring that back to the chess world, um, you know, when I, when I started with U.S. chess uh, almost two decades ago, you know, you almost needed to know the secret handshake to, to get involved in this world. Uh, I'm thinking of like the tournament life announcements where someone who's looking at that for the first time say, well, these look like English words, but it doesn't make any sense to me. Whereas we've now changed it so that when you enter an online uh, a t TLA, uh, you can use actual real English words and sentences in, in your posting uh, so that the language is not so that we misunderstand each other, but to convey information. It's also interesting to me that um, in 1913, you know, in, in these, what I would assume are conservative U.S. newspapers, you know, the strip was a very, you know, had surrealist landscapes and interesting ideas that, that had to be controversial at the time. Yes? You know, I think the ideas weren't, controversial because I, I think they went over a lot of readers' heads. Um, and, and, uh, but what was, what was I, there was never an analysis during Harriman's lifetime of how Crazy Cat reflects this, uh, you know, reflects race, uh, racial matters uh, in the strip. There was never an analysis during that time about that. And of course, Harriman could not say out loud what he was saying, what he was you know, putting in code in, in the strip. Um, what, but what was controversial is just how confusing it was to, to readers, uh, this male-female cat. Um, in fact, um, uh, there was a time uh, when um, Frank Capra, the director who did It's a Wonderful Life, uh, was visiting with George Harriman. He wrote about his autobiography, and, uh, and he asked Harriman, what's going on? Did you try, uh, you know, well, why do you have this male-female cat? It was, I think Capra was speaking for a lot of readers when he asked that question. And, and Harriman said he tried to make a crazy a female, tried to make crazy a male. It just didn't work. Uh, I think crazy cat has a sprite free to butt into anything. So just when it, you know, it kind of went to Shakespeare, I think, with, you know, with the idea of a sprite or, or mythology and to create these, um, these 
sort of mythic beings uh, who transcend uh, the categories that we give ourselves to, to understand each, you know, to understand ourselves. So, uh, so that, that confused readers. Um, but also, you know, Harriman provided the punchline. Uh, you know, the, the cat would throw the brick at the mouse and it would go dong in the, you know, zip pow, I guess, is what would be the sound. And, and there, there would be gags uh, as well. There would be a straight up sort of vaudeville derived uh, and later on silent comedy derived uh, uh, gags. And, and it was beautiful to look at. Harriman's artwork was beautiful. Uh, so it became sort of a, a, a cartoonist cartoonist. Um, where Harriman was, I think, also an exceedingly modest person. And you know, when you when you when you meet somebody, I certainly experienced that in the chess world. You know, meeting these grandmasters uh, and 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 to meet ones that are really quite modest about their abilities. And it's, it's such an engaging thing when when someone is both supremely gifted, but also doesn't carry that carry him or herself in a way that announces that kind of gift. I think Harriman was that with cartooning, and. Uh, um, there were some uh, writers and intellectuals of the day. Gilbert Seldes uh, was the main one who would do these articles in uh, Vanity Fair magazine or other magazines calling Harriman the great genius of the comics page and praising William Hearst for putting Harriman in the comics page. I think with Hearst, that went a long way. Hearst liked prestige, I think, as much as he liked money or more. And and uh, so I think that's what helped uh, Harriman keep his job is... is uh, people like Seldes or the poet E.E. E. Cummings was a, a major fan. And right after Harriman died, E.E. E. Cummings contacted his publisher and created the first Crazy Cat anthology because of that. Uh, and that's the book that Charles Schultz saw when he was coming home from the from uh, military service and read Crazy Cat and said, well, if I create a story about little children, I want it to be something more than just little cute children. I want there to be something about life in there, the way Harriman did that with Crazy Cat. Uh, so. He really opened up a, a door for so many people. Mm -hmm. And for many of our listeners who may not be fans of newspaper comic strips or newspaper, you know, the history of newspaper comic strips, they they may never have heard of Crazy Cat before, but they've certainly heard of Peanuts and Charlie Brown because you know they're ubiquitous. Um, you know, you you and I have have talked before about what what great fans we are, and you were also kind enough to send me a unpublished essay you wrote comparing the two. Um, one thing that surprised me about Schultz is that considering how many pop culture references he puts into a strip and considering he was at the height of his powers in the early seventies that I found that he had not addressed chess in his, in his strips. Uh, there is a peanuts database and I did a search and only two strips come up uh, with the hit chess. And one of them is really, it's just a background image. It's not even about chess. And the other one, it just has, it, it's one of the classic um, gags of Peppermint Patty um, failing or getting you know, another D minus in school. And she says, I'm a Parcheesi player in a chess world. Why, why do you think that Schultz ignored Bobby Fischer? Uh, or it, it, it just seemed like a natural for, for him to, especially potentially having Snoopy be the world famous chess champion. Um. That is, uh, well, first of all, I don't want to, I don't want to dance away too quickly from that great line. I'm a Parcheesi player in a chess world. That's so much better than, uh, the, the sort of typical cliche you hear. Well, he's playing checkers and he's playing chess or, you know, he's playing checkers and he's playing, you know, four dimensional chess or, you know, whatever. I think, I think Schultz came up with the best way of, of, of making that comparison with, uh, with a Parcheesi player in a chess world. But I have no idea. Uh, you, I completely agree with you that. Um, there were, there were, he made references to Bob Dylan. Uh, he made references to, well, he made references to Woodstock, that's for sure. Uh, and, and other cultural phenomenon during that time. And, and as we know, uh, the Bobby Fisher matches were massively, uh, important and, and, uh, and were massively, uh, uh, they were, they were a big, bright star in popular culture during, during that time. It wasn't, wasn't a chess world. It was a big multimedia splash story that, that would be pretty hard to avoid. And I don't know the answer to that question. I, I, I just don't. It seemed like figure skating and golf uh, occupied him more than chess. So there was another um, newspaper comic that I was a fan of starting as a kid because my parents had a, a an anthology of, of strips 
And in my research for this, I found, wow, this started the same year, actually 10 months before Crazy Cat, and it's bringing up father. Um, and uh, and mm-hmm. so right. this is definitely not an apples and apples comparison because I think bringing up father is it's 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 a it's a it's a one trick uh strip it's essentially a fish out of water story of of someone who has has struck it rich beverly hillbillies placed in 1913 um uh do you is there is this just pure coincidence that they started uh the same year or was this a particularly absolutely interesting year for newspaper comics and that's why they're both 1913 yeah, the uh, and and other comics as well during that time. Um, Polly and her pals uh, by Cliff Sturet, uh, which isn't so well known these days, but was an amazing work that started around this time. Uh, and and others. Uh, the first, uh, well, not the first. There were there were a few, but really, I would say William Hurst really got the uh, the daily comics page off the ground during this time. And uh, when you look at those comics pages, they're just extraordinary. You had a couple by Harriman, uh, Crazy Cat starting out. You had another one called The Family Upstairs uh, or The Dingbats uh, about these tenant, uh, these uh, uh, these tenants of a flat, and, and they're always fighting with their upstairs neighbor uh, who you never see. Uh, and you had uh, Desperate Desmond, uh, which was a serial, sort of a, a precursor to the movie serials, the cliffhanger movie serials, uh, which followed in the footsteps of Hair Breath Harry by C.W. Calls, who uh, was the great chess player, early cartoonist of history. He was, I think, president of the Brooklyn Chess Club, and he had chess cartoons. According to newspaper reports, I don't think they exist. I don't think they survived the test of time, but he had chess cartoons covering the Brooklyn Chess Center uh, at that time. Um, but uh, no, it, it was, you know, comics were really, uh, that decade before 1913, uh, they really came into their own. And uh, both Pulitzer, Joseph Pulitzer and, and William Hearst uh, knew they were incredibly valuable to attract readers. They were the they were the first time that all, when syndication came in, uh, the comics page was the first time that America all laughed together at the same thing. Uh, you know, it's before movies, before radio, before television, of course, before, uh, you know, and this, this was the time when, when we could all share a laugh about Ignatz's Brick or Crazy Jigs and, uh, you know, in, in, in the social climbing world or, uh, or other comics at that time. Uh, and they, they were, they were uh, superstars. Uh, during that time, you know, uh, they were the Cats and Jammer kids uh, and uh, the Yellow Kid, you know, long before that, Buster Brown. Uh, they were used to sell, you know, they were, uh, you and your retail world would have had uh, you know, Buster Brown and, and, and Yellow Kid items on your shelves. Uh, you know, this was the first syndication. These were the first sellouts. <laughs> this, was, this is where we all get this idea of a mass culture was on the comics page. So, uh, so yeah, it expanded and grew. Uh, just exponentially during that time, and and some just beautiful works, old comics. Uh, uh, we didn't mention Mutton Death, but that was probably the biggest one of, of that time, the most popular of that time, which started uh, appealing to uh, readers because they would actually put uh, uh, Mutton Jeff would actually have uh, horse race uh, results uh, embedded in the strip, and people started turning to it, thinking <laughs> that the cartoonist had an inside track on which horse. Uh, so it's. It was combined the sports world, combined with uh, the fashion world. Uh, Cliff Sturette in, in Polly and Her Pals would, would sort of debut, or at least stay on the cutting edge of uh, new women's fashions in the strip. It was all just part of one, one piece. You know the way, well, I was going to say the way TV and movies are now, but I guess or the way the internet is now, where right. it, it's all interwoven. You can't, you can't pull a hand out of the whole thing collapsing. That was the case with comics during that time. So I imagine that it's, this extensive research uh, and published work that you've done in the world of comics that uh, led the World Chess Hall of Fame to approach you about working with them on their exhibit from 2017, POW, Capturing Superheroes, Chess, and Comics. Is, is, is that how you were on their radar? I went in there and um, we visited... Uh, Miles and I, uh, in, in driving, 
uh, him to college, uh, we stopped in and spent the night in St. Louis to see the World Chess Hall of Fame and, and uh, get some games in. And he saw a couple chess superstars walking around. And there was, you know, it, 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 it's, it's quite a scene. And uh, as you know, and I ended up talking, I, I, I talked with uh, the curator there. And I think I asked at that time, have you ever thought about doing a chess and comics exhibit? Um, and they had already previously been thinking about that. So, um, so I, I sort of let them know, well, if you ever do, uh, I'm here to serve. Because uh, that's an area, you know, an area, that obviously, that interests me. Um, so, uh, so I was very happy when they did contact me when they decided they were going to go ahead. And, and with their resources, they built up an amazing collection of original comic books. That, that include chess art in them. Um, and uh, uh, I gave some suggestions about acquisitions, but really they were they were well down the road uh, with that. And then I gave me a free hand to write the essay any way I wanted to. Uh, so I was able to bring in the superhero work that they uh, had, had a, a assembled and some of the other comic stories, uh, as well as some of the early newspaper strips that had chess in it. Uh, which is obviously my passion and um, and web comics and uh, and just looked at how uh, cartoonists uh, cartoonists work with little narratives set in squares, right? Just like a chess game. It's a little a little stories, you know, set on set on a grid. Um, and uh, tried to get some of the comparisons between the the two practices, but really just looked at how cartoonists use chess uh, as organizing principles for some, or even just as a, as a quick metaphor between the struggle between two sides. So in, in movies and television, when chess is used, it's almost always to show the intelligence of a character. It's, it's their shorthand, mm -hmm. much less so a metaphor right. in, in the comics world is, is it, is the usual thing, just a metaphor for struggle? It, in comic books, it usually is. There are more, uh, or it's a, it's a metaphor for, um, one of my favorite chess comics is the Cats and Jammer Kids, which uh, ran for, I think, more than 100 years. Uh, Hans and Fritz, Cats and Jammer. It's a German, uh, bunch of uh, German kids. Cats and Jammer, by the way, means uh, the howling of cats, and it was a slang for a hangover, uh, for a hangover. So this is that thing about those early comics is they were very rowdy and, and sly and subversive in a way. So they were the hangover kids. So I think sort of living with them was sort of a, a you know, a constant banging on, on one's, on one's morning hangover. <laughs> um, but there are these, these two uh, bearded uh, gentlemen. That's also a big, uh, you know, sort of um, chess uh, cliche in stories and cartoons. It's like the two older gentlemen playing chess, you know, taking hours for each move. Uh, right there was that wonderful Pixar uh, animation. I forget the title of it now. It's, you know, gorgeous, gorgeous mm -hmm. uh, Pixar animation with that uh, with with that storyline. Uh, but in this case, <laughs> it's really I, I, it, it's it's every time I read it, I laugh. Uh, but these two old guys are playing chess, and Hammond and Fritz are doing everything they can to upset the game. They found a knot hole beneath the table, and they you know jammed a broomstick up up in it, and things like that. Uh, so I think so I think that. Chess uh, in com in a lot of comics also represents order, uh, and and uh, and uh, and the order that com comics likes to unleash chaos against. Uh, but yeah, uh, there's that great two page spread uh, where Doctor Doom in, in Marvel Comics is, is playing chess. Um, and I, I think that uh, like 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 you said to connote uh, intelligence for the chess player. Uh, possibly to connote uh, an obsession, an obsessive personality uh, for the for the chess player, um, to to connote a, a battle or to to show a battle between two sides, um, uh, and also I think uh, using uh, you know the same way that Bob Dylan used uh, the pawn metaphor in, in his song "Only a Pawn in Their Game," uh, using uh, the idea of chess characters being moved around by fate uh turning the the chess player into the hand of fate in some way uh and and often in, in some of the more nightmarish comics you see people get trapped and, and becoming the chess the chess pieces themselves getting moved around against their will on the chessboard as as you were working on this exhibit and and your and the essay did did you come upon anything that was particularly surprising to you about uh chess and comics uh 
mainly just how prevalent it was. Uh, once you open it up, uh, you know, there are some books that are, are very, very deep uh, into it. Uh, and uh, just like, like you said, the surprising thing uh, is that Schultz did it so infrequently because so many other cartoonists uh, did it so, uh, so frequently. Well, maybe there's the answer then right there about why Schultz didn't do it. Maybe he knew yeah, good, uh, he didn't want to be repetitive. That's a, that's a good point. Um, certainly, and certainly there's some some great works in there. You know, as a chess dad, I particularly love Foxtrot. Uh, I, is he? I've, I've often I've never looked this up. I, I think I mentioned and wrote about it, and I was kind of encouraging uh, the Chess Hall of Fame to uh, to give, do a special exhibit of of his work. Um, and maybe they have, and maybe they haven't. Maybe they have acquired it. Um, Bill Amend, right? I think that's his name, the cartoonist. I don't. That know. is, yeah. That is. Do you, do you know him? Uh, I mean, he's obviously an active chess player. He has strip after strip after strip about being a chess dad, and and his kids are, you know, oh my gosh, he wants to play chess again. And I just love, love the way he he blends chess and parenting uh, into his comics. Um, right, and the dad's always always hopeless, and it's always losing. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and I related uh, to that. Uh, <laughs> to that quite a bit, especially with Miles, you know, who now indulges me in the game. Hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that was, I guess, uh, that was, I guess, a major surprise. It's, it's how frequent it was and how deep some of the narratives could get uh, into chess like that. So as, as we begin to close out this episode, um, I, I understand that you just played in your first post-COVID tournament. Uh, talk about the experience about being back in person over the board. Yeah, it wasn't a tournament. Um, I loved doing chess with my kids. And once, as a father whose kids are now, one is an adult and living and working in Seattle, one is a junior in college. Um, it, it's been a transition, not just post-COVID, but, uh, you know, post-empty nest uh, to, to play chess, to figure out my chess Enjoy, I enjoy chess, and to, and to do that without it being going to an event with my kids as being part of it. Uh, when we do the chess camps, whether it was Castle Chess in Atlanta or uh, Ole Chess at St. Olaf in Minnesota, and those were the two that we did uh, the most. Uh, you know, I was always participating. I'd sometimes be the you know the, the one old guy in the room or something, but I would I would be a camper because it was it, I, I, it was it was exciting and, and having these having having a, a well, you know, uh, it's really just mind blowing some of these lessons and the things that you, you stare at a board and you think you see something and then, you, then one little thing is moved and suddenly a whole world, uh, you know, erupts on the board that you didn't think was there. So I wanted that experience along with my kids. And, uh, so I haven't done a chess lesson since doing it with my kids. Um, and because of COVID I hadn't done, uh, played anything except a couple uh, over the board, uh, you know, friendly games with friends. And then the move to Minnesota, uh, the recent move to Minnesota. So I've left behind some of my chess pals in, in New Orleans. But uh, uh, there is a library in Minneapolis and uh, the Walker Library, and uh, they have an organized weekly chess program. And Miles went one time to that. And he said, this was fun. You want to come? And we went and sat down and played our games and, and, uh, you know, had, had time to check out each other's games and talk about it afterwards and, and have good games. It was a good casual, but serious. That's my favorite, uh, kind of chess. I think is casual, but serious. Uh, um, and, uh, uh, evening of chess. And I forgot, uh, just how unique and lovely such an evening can be. And, it was, it was hats off to the organizers there. It's a weekly chess event, and I look forward to going back to that and uh, taking it from there. And in your professional life, uh, what projects are you working on and what's on the horizon? Uh, I have two books uh, that I'm contracted for right now. Uh, one is a children's book. Uh, my first book was called The Kingdom of Zydeco, about Louisiana Zydeco music, uh, Black Creole accordion music of rural Louisiana. Um, and I'm collaborating with an artist uh, who's also a Zydeco musician on a children's picture book about a little girl that learns to play accordion from her grandfather. Uh, and I'm very, and that's with the University of Louisiana Lafayette Press. Uh, 
And I'm very excited about that. And also working with uh, another writer, Allison Fensterstock, uh, out of New Orleans on a book for the historic New Orleans collection. That's the same organization that Kendrick Perkins is doing the chess fest with. And which owns, by the way, some Paul Morphy memorabilia. Um, and one of the, uh, the one of the curators there, uh, uh, Jake Wisey, uh, uh, took me on a little private tour to see the, uh, the, the Morphy. There's a cane and a chessboard and a couple other things like that. Um, but anyway, uh, there's a cartoonist uh, named Bunny Matthews, uh, iconic and beloved uh, in New Orleans, and uh, created these characters named Vic and Natalie, who run a poor boy shop and kind of comment on the world as it passes through their poor boy shop. Uh, but Bunny, uh, who I knew and uh, called a friend, uh, died last year of cancer, and we're working on a big treasury of, of his of his work uh, and and writing his biography. So those are the those are the two I'm working on right now. And if people are interested in learning more about you, what what is your website and how can they contact you? MichaelTisseran.com. and that's uh, I've got uh, samples of work. I think I've got some of my chess work up there. Maybe if not, I'll go put it up. And uh, I know I know I know that I do. I, I I know that I do, including the I think the article, the post Katrina uh, picking up the pieces article um, about Renee Phillips that we that I think is where we first met. Uh, I believe that's up there. Uh, so anyway, michaeltisserin.com uh, has information about my books, and you can also contact me through there. I get emails through uh, through that website. Well, Michael, this has been a lot of fun. As a chess world guy, but also a, uh, a fan of newspaper comics my entire life, uh, this has been a great conversation for me. Thank you so much for joining us on this October edition of One Move at a Time. We hit a lot of passions here. Uh, thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, good, to, good to talk to you. Look forward to getting uh, maybe back on a bus going to a, a <laughs> chess movie with you someday. Yeah, yeah. Or, 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 or not, not on a bus. We're, you know, just, just in person, sitting, sitting at a coffee table. <laughs> well, that'd be great. I look forward to That's it. Great. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at U.S. Chess are Cover Stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month, and on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you have learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.